Hello once again, everybody, and thank you for joining me here on this Wednesday, March 31st edition of ATS Radio. I'm your host, Adam Burke. I'll be joined today by Kiev O'Neill from the Odds Breakers. We'll break down the Final Four, talk about the potential national championship matchups, and then sort of put a bow on this college basketball season here. It's been great to have Kiev on the show over the last, I want to say 10 or 12 weeks, whatever it's been. He's been a nice addition to the program, gotten a lot of positive feedback about his segments. So we'll do it one more time here for this Wednesday edition of the show. Over at ATS.io, my 2021 MLB betting guide. Still up there, still available, been posted for over a month now. Tomorrow is opening day, so you've got your last chance to put in those season win total bets, whether you want to follow mine, do something else based on my write-ups, or just use mine to sort of compare and contrast your beliefs and thoughts about the Major League Baseball teams. Uh, That guide will still be relevant into the season, but obviously if you want to put those season win total bets in, all 30 teams expected to be in action tomorrow, weather permitting, of course, So today, that last day, really, or tomorrow morning to get those season win total picks in. And I will start with my daily picks piece over at ATS.io in the morning. So be on the lookout for that. That's not all that we have going on over at the website right now. Lots of picks and predictions from our talented cast of writers, my situational articles for the NBA and the NHL, golf preview for the Valero Texas Open, no NASCAR and no UFC this weekend, but when those events are going on, We do preview those over at the website as well. Finally, make sure you download the ATS app, which you can find in the Google Play Store or in the Apple Store. Full article integration from the website, bet tracking capability. It's an odd screen. You've got a stats database in there to help you handicap the teams in a given game. And if maybe you want some confirmation or you just want to take a look at our premium model subscriptions, $9.99 a month or $9.99 a week, excuse me, $19.99 a month for that. So you can check that out in the ATS app, which you can download in the Google Play Store or from the Apple Store. With that, we bring on today's guest, and that is Kiev O'Neill from the Odds Breakers. And how's it going today, my friend? Doing well, Adam. And then there were four, my friends. Not not the four that everybody thought. <laughs> but uh, but you up. know what? For, for the craziness we have had, I mean, there are two number ones and a number two. It's just that that pesky number 11 that kind of stands out. I know, right? And it's it, it, to be honest with you, I like it better this way. Who wants three number ones and a number two? You know, and it just kind of goes back to the whole thing before we talked about filling out our brackets. You know, there most of the time there's number one seeds in the final four. You know, don't get too cute. Well, most people had Gonzaga and uh, Baylor, of course, in there. It's just uh, the whole number two seed with Houston was probably one of the least common two seeds. But with with UCLA there. Um, I read a stat today that only 0.0002% of brackets had the correct final four. And I have to guess they're UCLA fans, Adam. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely think so, especially having gone from that play-in game all the way to this point. We've obviously got a lot to talk about here about these two final four games. But before we get into that, you know, something that we, we were talking about on Monday's show with Kyle Hunter just about the very poor shooting percentages in this tournament as a whole. Of course, everybody bubbled in Indianapolis, playing at the different venues around there and all of that. So, you know, an unconventional March Madness this year, an unconventional NCAA tournament. But with the really horrific shooting percentages we've seen, you know, obviously we saw some conferences fare a lot better than others. Is there anything you're taking away from this NCAA tournament that you're going to apply to future NCAA tournaments? Yes, there is one thing, and I can't attest the shooting percentage completely to just playing in Indianapolis. I think it's also the randomness of this whole season with the COVID distractions and everything. But one thing I will be taking in is that these officials were told to let these teams play for the most part. They didn't want a bunch of fouls in this one because they didn't want it to be a ref show. I think they're starting to pick up on the fact that officiating is taking a lot of scrutiny. And I think it's, they should be, you know, for some of the ways it's run, but at the same time, they're told to swallow the whistles. And that's why you see all those first half unders hit, you know, the very second day I noticed the first half unders, I gave out seven uh, first half unders to premium subscribers. I think five of them hit. You know, it's just one of those things that you can see the ref swallowing the whistle. That means when you're getting hammered in the paint, you're not getting the foul. So you're not getting the free throws and you're not too excited to go in the paint again if you're not getting the foul. 
So I am going to take that for next year, especially during tournament time, because I can just uh, feel that CBS and some of the network executives is, might, you know, let the officials know not to be blowing those whistles once again. Well, and, and I've used this example before, and, and obviously it's on a much smaller scale, but when I used to ref hockey doing 16 and under type stuff, you know, if it was a high level game and I, I got to do some high level games, you know, some double A showcase tournaments and, and stuff like that. I didn't want to be the reason a game was decided. I, I wanted to just let the kids decide. I wanted to let them play as much as I possibly could call the most egregious things, of course, but, you know, kind of set that standard early on that, you know, I was going to let both teams play. And, you know, I would let the captains know that before the game too. I'd be like, look, don't do any stupid shit. Don't cross check anybody in the back. You know, don't hit anybody from behind in the corners, anything like that. I will let you guys play. If you, you know, play within the rules that you're supposed to play within. And, and the team's always appreciated that. And the team's always like that. And again, it's on a much smaller scale, but in a tournament like this, a showcase tournament for college basketball, there has to be some level of sentiment here of, we need to let these players decide this. We need to let these kids go out there and make the plays, not make it about us. And it, it's been a breath of fresh air. It's been very nice to see, as you mentioned. And also, too, it does lead to some lower scoring, particularly in the first half. You know, in the second half, you get the falling to extend the game and all of that. And those things have to be called. And, and the refs are ready to blow the whistle when the ball is inbounded because they know what's coming. But, yeah, it's been nice to see that they've let these teams play and maybe that's part of the reason why the shooting percentages have been so bad. These games have been quite physical. We've seen a lot of missed open shots too. But, you know, I do wonder, I hope that this kind of was the mandate of, you know what, we're in the spotlight here. Let's leave it up to the players. And you hope that that's a philosophy carried over down the line. Yes, absolutely. Because I prefer it that way too. Now, as somebody who bets on games, I really wish I would have kind of, factor that in more i I, see i'm i'm gonna learn from this that i could have factored that in more i'm trying to find the teams that are more adaptable to that type of officiating because some of the teams really weren't you know and uh and it really cost them uh some of these big seeds dropping out you know oklahoma state you know they expect to get foul calls they didn't get nearly as many foul calls as they are used to in the big 12 or just regular season play and it really affected them so, you know, we, I think next year when we come into this tournament, we have to remember this and kind of try to pick out the teams that are more adaptive to a rougher style game, you know, possibly taking better shots in the paint or something like that might help them. But um, lots of inconsistency. But one thing's for sure, Adam, this whole COVID year and to, even into 2021 here, chalk has been raining high. You have the Lakers winning, you know, you had the Lightning winning, you had the Dodgers winning. You had Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. I would not be shocked at all to see Gonzaga win this easily now. And I think they're the clear favorite to do it. Well, and then lastly, to your point about the officiating, you know, we've kind of bitched about this a little bit on our segments with regards to the Big Ten and some of the fall fests and ref shows that we've had uh, in that conference, especially later on in the regular season. And We've hypothesized a bunch of different things as to why the Big Ten struggled in this tournament. I think a big part of it was that, you know, they just don't face a lot of aggressive pressure defenses in conference, very low turnover percentages. They got to the NCAA tournament and struggled with teams that forced turnovers, struggled to take care of the basketball, as we saw with, you know, especially the teams that dropped out very early. But perhaps that was part of it, too. You know, just the physical brand of basketball that teams brought against the Big Ten, and they just weren't able to adapt to it, as you said. And again, maybe it's just, you know, some recency bias. Maybe it's kind of a one-year thing here. But I think that, you know, there are things that you do want to file away in the back of your mind for future NCAA tournaments. And and I do think you're onto something there. And maybe the Big Ten is the confirmation of, of what we're talking about. Yeah, and I, in, in as a whole, the Big Ten I thought was officiated a little bit stronger than other conferences, and I think they expected you know more whistles coming into this tournament, and then they're getting aggressive play, and they're not getting the whistles. They didn't adapt, and it's hard to know that when you're in a conference that you know there's a lot more whistles than this tournament. You don't play as tough. You don't you know try to steal the ball like Baylor's ball hawking everybody. You don't do that, and you end up losing because of it. And uh, very important to take that uh, information into next year, in my opinion. So uh, I even put a little reminder in my calendar. 
<laughs> about the about first half unders, man, and and about uh, you know how this tournament could be officiated. Well, so with that in mind here, let's take a look at the first of the two final four games coming up on Saturday. That is Houston and Baylor. Baylor pretty much minus five Marcus market wide. If you look hard enough, you'll find a five and a half out there, but those are few and far between. Total basically in the 135 range, almost across the board. Again, you might find a 134 and a half, something like that. But to your point about how these games have been officiated, this could be a pretty physical game, especially down at the rim where both of these teams excellent on the offensive rebounding side, but both of these teams do leave something to be desired on the defensive rebounding side. I do wonder if how this game is called kind of, you know, may come into play here with Baylor laying five. I think it really will come into play, but I mean, I think there's some narrative issues with this game and you can look at it either way, but you know, everyone says Houston's only faced double digit seeds to get to the final four. This is the first time that's ever happened. I agree. But what does that matter? I mean, I mean to me, I guess got to look at what Houston was when they were coming in. They've always been a top 10, top 12 efficiency team on Ken Palm. They're number three right now because of their successes. You know, they were, they were a legit team. In my opinion, I, I always complain about their shooting percentage. So I hated them as a favorite and somehow that worked out for us uh, with the under in the side on Monday, but um, Baylor that they themselves aren't as good of a defensive team as people think, you know, I think their turnovers uh, are great. And I think their ball pressure is absolutely fantastic, but they only rank 120th in opponent effective field goal percentage. So, um, you know, I, I would wonder if Baylor's going to, or if uh, Houston's going to get some points against them here. You know, uh, the question is, can Houston take care of the ball and not turn it over to Baylor? Because Baylor thrives on that stuff. I think the fact that Baylor started so well against Arkansas is why this spread is so large, Adam. Because if you look at the other efficiency sites, Adam, this spread is nowhere near five. Yeah, no, it definitely isn't. In fact, I believe, and I'm going to double check this here right away, that Bart Torvik's website actually has Houston favored in this game. He actually has Houston a higher ranked team than Baylor. Houston, number two in the country, Baylor, number three. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. And then, as you mentioned, you know, Ken Palm's got this one a little bit lower than it actually is. I will say this. I will disagree with you in the sense that it's just a narrative with Houston that they've only played double-digit seeds here to get to this point. The thing that's concerning to me is – you look at the strength of competition they've played. They've played Cleveland State, Rutgers, Syracuse, Oregon State, as we know. And look, those four, those teams against them in this tournament, shooting 42.1% on twos, not that far off from their season number, around 42.9%. And those opponents have actually shot better from three than what they've allowed for the full season here. Those four teams, 34.3% in this tournament. For the year, Houston down around 29% in three-point percentage defense. So what concerns me here is that they've had a very friendly draw. They've played some relatively weak teams, certainly compared to what Baylor has played, and yet they haven't fared any better than what they did for the full season. So it, it concerns me that playing this weaker schedule relative to some of the other teams in this tournament, I don't think they've thrived as much as, you know, the, as, much as they should have, really. This is not a great team offensively. They do not shoot the ball particularly well. They are good on the offensive glass, and that helps them hide some things. And they take care of the basketball pretty well, but they don't make a lot of shots. And defensively here, I would say they haven't been as good in this tournament as their full body of work suggests that they should. So I think it's very fair to point out that they have not played a single-digit seed yet and really played you know, a Rutgers team that, Largely got to the tournament because they were in the Big Ten. Syracuse, based on reputation. And then Oregon State, a, you know, I'm not going to say below average team, maybe below average by the standards of this tournament, that got really, really hot at the right time. I have genuine concerns about Houston here matching up with a team as good as Baylor. You know, great points, first of all. But even though they got, I don't, what if this game happened before the tournament? I, I'm kind of looking at its own entity. You know, I think that there's a big narrative that yes, they, because they had it easy and they've had it the easiest route. There's no question about that. They had the easiest route to get to this final four, but you know, what is Baylor here? You know, Baylor 
they're not that great at stopping people shooting the ball and they're, and they're great at, you know, getting to turnovers, but does Houston uh, turn the ball over that much? Well, they rank 41st in turnover percentage out of 350 ish teams, right? That's pretty good. Uh, Houston could get a few turnovers themselves. They play a very slow game. You know, uh, Coach Kelvin Sampson wants to slow it down, and they do pretty well at doing that. I don't think that works great for them as a favorite. But the big thing for me, Adam, what's Houston as a dog? You know when the last time they've been favored in a game is? The last time they've been a dog, you mean? I'm, I'm sorry, the last time they've been a dog, yes. Oh, boy. Uh, Texas Tech? That's right. November 29th. Against Texas Tech, they were a three-point dog, and they won by 11 points on a neutral court. You know, what's Houston coming in as a dog going to be like? The thing about – I have – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you. I, I was surprised this, this uh, came out at five points, and I thought that we'd see some more Houston money by now. And the metric sites has this, like you said, Bartorvik has it. Houston favored as one. Ken Palm has Baylor favored as one. Haslametrics has Baylor favored by one they all seem to agree with each other i mean this is the kind of stuff that we you know believe in for the most part we try to find holes in it to fade in the right spots but grimes is now a dog he's going to come into this game i think there's a chance that he can keep houston in this game now the question is i'm two points off the spread right i have baylor winning by three Houston is now a five points. So at what point do you want to fire? I think there's a little bit of value in uh, the five points right now. You know, it doesn't mean I won't buy back if, if Houston's up at halftime, but um, Houston doesn't turn the ball over. They play it slow like UCLA did against Michigan. I think the spread could be a little bit too big. Well, and I think something that's really interesting to, to sort of talk about here is, is how the markets are kind of a slave to what Ken Palm has. The markets are a slave to what these metric sites have for lines on these games. And now we get this deviation and a pretty significant one at that. And we've seen those throughout March Madness anyway, because, you know, there's just significantly more action on each individual game than you typically see during the regular season. But to have a line at this point that's four points off of Ken Palm with all of the data points that Ken Palm has in his system now, I think it is really interesting. And, and maybe it does speak... Uh, to that narrative point that you made. Again, I like to think of it as, you know, Baylor's just had the tougher path. I think Houston's been a little bit underwhelming to that end. But, you know, again, something that you mentioned there in in your breakdown is, can Houston take care of the basketball? Because this is a Baylor team that through four games in this tournament is plus 40 in turnover margin. Now, of course, Hartford turned it over 24 times. So, you know, maybe (laughs) that's kind of an outlier. But with that being said, Villanova, who was number one in the country in turnover percentage on offense, turned it over 16 times in a game played to just 57 possessions. So Baylor even forced Villanova into a lot of mistakes. Do they force Houston into a similar number of mistakes? And if they do, they do cover this five number. So it sounds like you and I have a difference of opinion on this game. I do like Baylor minus the five. You like Houston plus the five. So uh, I guess we're going to have some late season bragging rights on this one between you and I. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do this right at five, Adam. We'll do it for a nice, uh, delicious IPA beer uh, next time I run into you. So uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll put this on the board. Okay. I, I think that, you know, Baylor, they play fast and a lot of people think, you know, teams can get margin because of doing that shooting percentage is better. 48.6 to 43.7. Neither team is all that tall, but, uh, you know, Houston does have the rebounding uh, advantage, 41 per game to 36, and uh, that's playing at a slower pace. So uh, I, I trust Quentin Grimes here. I trust him coming in to keep it a little bit closer. Now, you know, we'll see who's right on this one, but um, I just have to go with the sites that I trust, the the Torvix, the, the you know, the, the efficiency numbers from Ken Palm, the efficiency numbers from Haslametrics, you know, it, it shows that uh, this should be a lot closer of a game. What worries me about Baylor is two things. You saw how Villanova took care of them for three quarters of that game before they choked it away. Three quarters of that game, they're winning. I think Houston could be, could do a little bit more since their star is playing. I, I think they could possibly keep a little bit of a lead by slowing it down and, you know, forcing Baylor to, you know, play from their heels. I think that's a big point. And what about in Arkansas? 
when they lost their best player with 14 minutes left in the game, J.D. Note fouled out, right? He's leading in scoring, and the coach Musselman keeps him in. That blew my mind a little bit. And uh, they, they almost covered the spread there. Uh, they end up, uh, Baylor was up by like 20 points. They came back. Note falls off, and they still win by nine, right? What, what's the score of that game if Note plays? Is it a lot closer? Maybe the perception of Baylor is not as much? I don't know, man. But uh, something smells in this game. I'll grab the points. All right. So we got our difference of opinion there on that one. And I think this is a really good segue into talking about UCLA and Gonzaga in terms of teams dictating the pace and tempo of a game. You know, the, the teams that have been able to consistently do that, the Oregon States, the UCLAs of the world, they've been able to have success with that. And, and I think that what it speaks to and something that I'll file away uh, as far as future tournaments go, you know, these teams that get kind of challenged, these teams that are made to feel uncomfortable or get frustrated or flustered because they're forced to play this really slow, boring-ass brand of basketball, and they kind of have a hard time with it. And it's a big part of the reason why I think, you know, Oregon State and UCLA have made the runs that they've had here in this tournament. And, you know, when you sit there and think about what UCLA did to Michigan in relation to what Gonzaga did to USC – Gonzaga sped up USC and the Trojans were very uncomfortable in the first half of that game. They got buried very early on, just never looked like they were going to give Gonzaga any kind of game whatsoever. Meanwhile, UCLA, they dragged that game down to a snail's pace against Michigan. And it's not to say that Michigan wants to run up and down the floor, play at some breakneck speed or anything like that, but Michigan sure as hell does not want to play a game to 59 possessions like they did yesterday against UCLA. And UCLA made Michigan uncomfortable. Michigan struggled to shoot the basketball. They only got to the free throw line 11 times. And here we are with UCLA up against Gonzaga. And the question, of course, becomes here, does UCLA have any semblance of a chance at slowing Gonzaga down, at slowing the Bulldogs down to a pace that they have not played at all year long? We've got a spread here, Kiev, of 14 or 14 and a half for a final four game. But it seems to me like the only hope UCLA has is if they can slow this tempo down. Yeah. I mean, you can wish in one hand and crap in the other and see which one fills up first, because there are no way that they can only score 50 some points and beat Gonzaga here. I don't even think they can cover if they score 51, not a chance. They can't cover if they score 60, probably. <laughs> Adam, man, I have not seen a team that comes in with the confidence of Gonzaga. You know what's funny? We talk about maybe we'll do a money line roller of Gonzaga. We might get to plus 200 by the final game. <laughs> you could, we could have done a money line rollover on the spread with Gonzaga. You know, they cover every single game here, they're unstoppable. You know, the thing about Gonzaga, they remind me of Alabama in football. They have an extra gear that we never get to see because they don't need to use it, right? Ah, man, there is something to that USC matchup. And I will admit I was on USC plus the nine. It closed at the eight and a half or it was really close. It might have bounced back up tonight. I don't know. But it was eight and a half for a lot of the day. I thought USC matched up well against Gonzaga down low. I thought they could stop Timmy. USC started out awful. I mean, they couldn't make shots in the paint they couldn't make their little hook shots i think they're just really intimidated while gonzaga's coming up being like we know we're the best we're not missing our first shots we're we're gonna jump you no matter what i see that same confidence coming into this game now i i give mick cronin a ton of credit here 59 possessions against michigan but in saying that man i still can't buy what usc's selling here franz wagner we used to call him Franz Wagner, but he lost that status. Went one for 10 from the field and zero for four from three. If, if a guy's taking that many shots and missing them, you're losing that game. That is he, just an awful performance from France there, you know? And you also got to give a lot of credit to Johnny Juzang and Tiger Campbell. They played very well, but. Michigan missed their last eight shots with four minutes left in this game. 
just didn't look the same. This is where the liver's injury finally came in. And I'm pissed that I couldn't foresee that myself. Cause I, that was my narrative when Michigan played Florida state, I lost on that one. And then now it shows its ugly face. The leader wasn't there to dig them out of trouble. People are missing shots. Where is that guy? This was the one of the worst games I've seen Michigan play. And I do credit UCLA's defense. It has been better. But if you look at the trend line on UCLA's defense, it skyrockets since the tournament starts up on effect, opponent effective field goal percentage and defensive efficiency. But their offensive one is pretty stagnant. It's just that the teams are really, really missing shots against them. And I do give the credit to Mick Cronin dumbing it down, slowing it down, and frustrating their opponents. But at the same time, when you face a team that's going to have the confidence as, as the Zags, even with 14 points, I still lean Gonzaga here. But I actually think the over might be a little bit better of a uh, of a shot, or at least a Gonzaga team total. I, I have Gonzaga winning 81 to 67, right on the 14, right? But what's the over at? 145, pretty low. I can see the Zags scoring 85 points. I can see them scoring 90 points. So I, I just have leans on this game, but I would not be shocked if uh, the Zags cover this at all. Yeah, I think it's really hard to have any sort of a strong position on this game. I mean, you could make the case, I think, for Gonzaga first half if they just sort of blitz this UCLA team much like they did against USC. I guess that's a possibility. And they're minus eight for the first half, by the way. At 14, 14 and a half, I mean – Do they call off the dogs, pardon the pun, in this game? You know, with – they'll already know who they're playing. They'll know if they're playing Houston or Baylor in that national championship game. Do they get up big in the second half of this game and kind of slow it down? Do they empty the bench and sort of give those guys that have contributed to the program the opportunity to say, we played in the Final Four? I mean, I think Mark Few is plenty capable of that. Granted, they could also go out there and just keep running their offense, not develop any bad habits, and just add on to the lead. I think the late-game situation here for Gonzaga is pretty scary as far as this 14, 14 14-and-a-half number goes. And similarly, I think the total is kind of scary too because if they're up big and they've got this national championship game coming up on Monday, who plays late in this game? Do they continue to go up and down the floor at the pace that they usually do? Do they just try to draw this thing out, kind of finish it off, make sure nobody gets hobbled or anything like that? You know, I don't know. But then you also sit there and you look at it and you say, okay, Cronin's been a magic man here. You know, he really slowed down BYU. Not that BYU plays at the same tempo as Gonzaga, but they're a pretty average tempo team. That game was played to 60 possessions. Michigan, 59 possessions. Can they have that success against Gonzaga to slow this thing down enough for it to stay under the total? Or does Gonzaga just do what they've done in every game, score over 80 points, and force UCLA to try and play catch-up as much as humanly possible? And if you're playing catch-up, the pace speeds up. So I think it's very hard to play either side or total in this game. Like I said, maybe Gonzaga minus eight first half simply because UCLA is in line for some defensive regression. And if it's going to come, it's probably going to come against Gonzaga. But man, this is a hard game to bet. Dude, it, and it's so funny. Lane eight at first half. I mean, that's <laughs> it's unheard of almost, man, in a situation like this against you know UCLA. Uh, I agree with you though. I, maybe you do this. Maybe you take a maybe you take the over and then kind of see how the game's going. If UCLA can't score, you try to live get the under, because the pace will go. UCLA will have to play a higher pace if uh, they're losing. You know, they, they know they're going to have to throw that whole, uh, you know, drain the shot clock thing away because they're never, they, they should know, and Mick Cronin should know that they can't win like that. But, uh, you know, maybe you can live bet the second half under if there's going to be a blowout, because I do see Gonzaga not running up the score here. I do see them getting their younger kids in in a Final Four game. I do see them saving themselves because they have to play two days later against a tough Baylor or Houston team, right? So, yeah, and that's what makes it dangerous about this spread. Gonzaga's up by 17 with a minute left. This gets a couple garbage threes from UCLA. Absolutely, man. (laughs) It's an ugly one, man. The efficiency uh, sites have it 12, so that's all I can say about that. And I will say uh, credit to our good friend, Kyle Hunter, who was on the under for that USC Gonzaga game. And and that got real dicey late where Gonzaga, you know, they didn't really put it away. They just kind of kept playing their game late in that one and nearly pushed it over the total. 
Uh, but you know, shout out to Kyle for getting that one there. I know I was texting with him and uh, he was, he was pretty unhappy about the way that things were going early on in that game, but uh, I'm well, glad well, that it got there for him at the end. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is Kyle's handicap. I agreed with it too. It, we thought USC was going to be able to do better on defense, but what's funny is Gonzaga's defense was there. Their yeah. defense, their defense is better than what's shown. You know, that, that's the funny thing about it. It's uh, Gonzaga's great on both ends of the ball. And that's why they're the super team. That's probably going to win it all. Honestly, I mean, I hope they win it all at this point. I mean, I, I don't know if we've had an offense this good in college basketball, just this efficient. I mean, they share the ball so well. They've mm-hmm. got what six, seven guys they can rely on to score if they need to. It's it's just it's fun to watch them play basketball. I, I really do, you know, hope this is the year for them. No offense to anybody with a future on the other side of the bracket or, or anything like that. But man, I just I, I look at this game and I know from a point spread standpoint, it obviously wouldn't be the biggest upset in college basketball history and not even close. But I feel like sort of given the stakes and the context here it might be the biggest upset if UCLA was to win, if not very close to it. I mean, historical with game meaning, absolutely. It would be the biggest upset if UCLA comes, but what, 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 I mean, when does Gonzaga have a stinker at this point? I don't think they do. I think they're motivated for Mark few. And I agree with you. I want them to win it too, because Mark few absolutely deserves it. I want to see team basketball. I don't want to see a bunch of guys that, you know, are thinking towards the NBA and uh, it's not quite as important to them. These guys, you know, play for each other. They pass the ball so well, you know, they run like a, just a smooth machine, man. Gonzaga deserves to win it all. And I like them in any matchup that they have. The funny thing is you talk about Gonzaga throwing out a clunker or a stinker or something like that. They probably still win by six or seven. Like, I mean, that's just how good they are. It's, it's absurd. I, I hope they finish this thing off. They go 32 and oh, I, I hope they do. I'll root for them here. Speaking of that, we take a look here and it's an interesting discussion out there on Twitter today uh, between Jeff Fogel, who's a guy who does a lot of stuff in this space, a guy who looks at a lot of analytics based stuff and Matt Metcalf, who's over at Circa Sports and, they were talking about money lines here for the uh, national championship game, the potential national championship games here uh, at Jeff Fogle. That's F O G L E, not like Fogle from super bad. Um, he talks a lot about money line rollovers and all that kind of thing. So that's why he was asking about these money line prices. And Kiev, as we take a look here at what he sort of threw out and Metcalf responded to it, it looks as though, If we get Gonzaga versus Baylor in the national championship game, if both favorites hold up here, we're probably looking at Gonzaga minus six and a half or so, maybe minus seven out there, depending on where you look. Uh, What does that number sound like to you there with Gonzaga about minus six and a half or seven against Baylor? I think it opens up for a second at minus six and immediately goes to minus seven. Um, I think it probably closes at minus eight, minus eight and a half. Personally, I just think that the Zags are just getting that money and just the way they've been covering throughout this whole tournament has been pretty amazing. And not to say that Baylor hasn't been doing an amazing job. It's just that, you know, Gonzaga is that much better than everybody else. Like I said, with the extra gear, I think a lot of people see that extra gear, which is unquantifiable, right? The bad thing about Baylor in this matchup is, you know how they are great at turning the ball over ranked number three. Well, Gonzaga doesn't turn the ball over, <laughs> you know, bad news for you there for a team that plays third in pace in the whole nation to only rank top 40 and allowing turnovers. That's fantastic. You know, normally fast paced teams turn the ball over some because there's way more possessions. They play sloppier, not Gonzaga. And then you look at uh, the effective field goal percentage for Baylor, as I mentioned before, ranking 120th. Well, who's the best field goal store in the nation? Gonzaga ranking over 60%. <laughs> I mean, Gonzaga feeds right into Baylor's little weaknesses. And Baylor doesn't have a ton of them, but Gonzaga, Gonzaga can control this game. And I would probably lay the points with Gonzaga all the way up to seven and a half. Yeah, the one thing that's scary, Baylor number one in the country in three-point percentage offense. So if they shot it well, they'd have a chance to hang around, certainly. Uh, but that'd be be a good game. I, I hope that that's the one that we get. And certainly it looks like it will be the one, but you know, I know Haslametrics tweeted maybe a week or so ago about how he had Gonzaga minus seven over Baylor on a neutral. And, and maybe that's even gone up a little bit. Maybe it's more like seven and a half, but that does sound about the range here uh, for that game. If we get it now, if Houston does upset Baylor and Gonzaga does what they're supposed to do, 
looks as though that number is around Gonzaga minus 10, minus 10 and a half, if not higher, depending on what the Zags do against UCLA. But if nothing else, we can confidently say if it's Gonzaga and Houston, this line is double digits. Yeah, it is because the market has Baylor a five-point favorite, even though the metric sites, I, ha- I just looked at Haslametrics's potential matchup and it's eight, you know, versus Houston, Gonzaga versus Houston's about an eight-point spread, but it's going to be over 10. But, you know, like I said with Houston, they're, they're, they have their shooting deficiencies. What shows up this game? You know, if this happens, you know, Houston's going to try to slow this game down just like uh, UCLA is going to try to slow Gonzaga down and it's probably not going to work. But, um, you know, I, I trust Houston more than UCLA. I mean, if this gets to be a 14-point spread or something, I would probably look more towards Houston here just because they have better ball pressure and, uh, you know, some some I think they have some better players. But, uh, man, I, I, I can't bet Houston at 10. There's no way, even though the metric sites say, hey, I can't do it, man. Well, and if we get the UCLA upset, and again, I don't think that we do. I don't, I don't think we have to spend a ton of time on this. If we do, it'll be a complete and utter stunner. And you know, looking at what the number would be now is a lot different than looking at what it would be on Saturday. Because if UCLA were to beat Gonzaga, I mean, you'd have to give them a ton of respect for that victory. So as we kind of look ahead, project a little bit right now, it does appear as though Baylor, probably a nine and a half, 10 point favorite or so over UCLA. And then Houston, probably in the four, four and a half range. Again, I don't think it really matters because I don't think UCLA beats Gonzaga. They could cover, certainly. I don't think they win the game outright, but it does look like Baylor's laying around doubles and Houston, probably in that four, four and a half, five corridor. I mean, if Houston upsets Gonzaga, they're going to get so much cred. UCLA, I mean. Yeah, UCLA, they're going to get so much credit here, man, for it. And it's probably going to be about seven, seven and a half against Baylor, to be honest with you. I mean, they've already moved up to 15 on Ken Palm. Beating Gonzaga, (laughs) they're probably going to be around the top nine, top 10. It jumps some more people right there, uh, at least, you know. And then, uh, and that's going to be about a seven, seven and a half point spread against Baylor, in my opinion. Probably, you know, uh, maybe five. Four, four or five would Houston be favored by four or five if that's the case I don't know that's, that's what I would think right five is that fair yeah I, I guess so I see the thing of it is though I and maybe this is just tunnel vision on my part but if UCLA pulls this enormous shocker and beats Gonzaga then has to come back like two days later and play again against you know a, a top five caliber team I would need one hell of a price to take UCLA. I just, it would be so hard to come back within 48 hours or so. And because look, you have to play your absolute best game of your life to beat Gonzaga. There's no way they could possibly replicate that again. I mean, I I would have to really consider, really seriously consider fading UCLA in that title game, almost regardless of, I mean, the number is going to be something reasonable, but almost regardless of, of what number comes out, just because I just don't think that you can respond that quickly like that. Oh, it, it would be the biggest letdown spot in tournament history. <laughs> you know, I mean, a, a see, it would just be, it would take so much emotion to be out of them just to beat them, you know? And uh, maybe you just have to go against UCLA one more time and just kiss your money goodbye and be like, well, this is for you. If you win, I'm going to build a statue for you of you guys in my front yard. I mean, what what an amazing feat that would be uh, to go ahead and beat like Baylor after Gonzaga. Uh, that would be absolutely ridiculous. But I mean, <laughs> we're talking about a, a team that's what plus 800 to win this game when Gonzaga's minus 1150. <laughs> I mean, let's be real. I, I, I would be absolutely blown away if this game's even close. Uh, but yeah, it, you're right. You'd have to go against UCLA two days later. You have to for everything we've talked about and done in sports betting, we would have to go against them. And, and furthermore, I think it'd be their seventh game in 18 days in this tournament of playing, you know, high intensity, high pressure types of games, two overtime games in that span. Of course, you know, only played to 59 possessions against Michigan, but certainly a very emotional, hard fought game. I mean, I give them credit for where they are, quite frankly. You know, I, they could lose by 50 to Gonzaga, and I would still give them a lot of credit for their tor- tournament performance, to say the least. So, 
mm-hmm. you know, we'll see what happens here in this one. I guess stranger things have happened. You know, that's why they play the games and, and all those other cliches. But I, I, I think we're looking at Baylor and Gonzaga and, and I could make a case for Houston and Gonzaga, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens here. We'll see who wins that side bet uh, with that Houston and Baylor game with uh, I got Baylor minus five and Kiev with Houston plus the five. So I want to ask you about this here, Kiev, and this is where I'm going to put you on the spot. And I do this to all of my guests at the end of a season, but clearly a weird year, you know, the COVID year, the COVID pauses, uh, really no non-conference. You had some imbalanced conference schedules, especially in some of the low major conferences and all of that. So as you look back at your year in review for college basketball, I'll ask you the first part and then I'll save the second part of the two part question here for later. But as far as the first part goes, what do you feel like you did well this season? What are some areas where you feel like you had either a good handle on the market or a good handle on some teams? Well, I thought I did well getting good line value and my numbers usually matched up with it. Now, this was a year that it didn't turn out always so well for line value. And we've discussed this on many podcasts, but that's not something I want to go away from Adam ever. You know, if you're getting good line value, it, over time, it's going to pay off. And you can also come back when it gets past a certain amount where there's more of a, a 5% uh, middle right there. You know, that's important. And I think that's something that we have to learn about. But uh, I think getting the, the spreads, hitting them as quickly as you can. Now, obviously, if you're a max limit better in the five-figure range or even six, right, uh, you can't quite get your money out there right away. But most players do. I think there's a lot more sharper people that do it nowadays, Adam, that I noticed that are getting in these lines early just because the apps and the availability, you know, Uh, people have apps, people are interested in it. So that's something I thought I did well. And I, you know, I, whatever, whatever ones I lost, I'm not going to hold that against it. All right. So the follow-up question, obviously here, what do you feel like you didn't do as well? What do you feel like is an area that, you know, maybe you need to improve upon or something you'd like to do differently uh, for, you know, this upcoming college basketball season that will start before we know it here in the month of uh, November? You know what I didn't do well, it, for sure, especially during the Sweet 16 here, I had a bad Sweet 16. I didn't really judge uh, the conferences correctly. You know, I, I let myself fall to narrative biases too much in that. And that's something I'm going to keep mindful of towards next year. I think every team has their, their own ups and downs. And, uh, you know, if they're, if you got talent in the PAC 12, why do we think so bad about it? You know, kind of things like that, you know, it, just like we mentioned before, where I'm going to look at the, uh, the officiating in the tournament games a little bit differently. I think they're going to do a better job in swallowing the whistles. Neither of us, Adam, like foul fest. I think that's something I'm going to even try to do better on for next year. Um, And I mentioned that I don't always want to go by the Ken Palms and, and the sites that everybody else is using. Well, you know, I I got away from that and I probably should have put more time into, you know, evaluating the other metrics in the games that were really right in my face that I kind of faded like the assist to turnover ratio. I think assist to turnover ratio is an underrated metric that I need to start using a little bit more because teams with an assist to good turnover ratio usually don't turn over the ball. They capitalize on turnovers and they're just a much better passing team. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to look at the quality of the shots that some teams take a little bit more shot quality is a great site with Simon in there. I'm going to start looking at his stuff a little bit more. I think that's something I could have done better as well, Adam. Well, and a quick plug there that you had Simon from shot quality on your podcast late last week. And and obviously I'm sure you guys talked a lot about the games that have already been completed, but still probably some good value in going back and listening to that show and kind of what the function is of shot quality, what the importance is uh, of using some of those metrics that are out there. Lastly here, then Kiev, I guess this COVID season, as I mentioned already, the pauses, the the imbalanced conference schedules, no non-conference, you know, some teams that went long times between games, some teams that maybe played through some COVID situations with a short roster. You think about East Carolina, you know, one of those teams that played some days with maybe seven guys total that were available for them, stuff like that. Is, is a lot of this year just a write-off for you? Do you just, you know, not really consider it going forward because of what all the teams and, and the programs and the players had to deal with? Even, you know, obviously the Ivy League not even playing. Or 
Do you think that there were some things that, you know, even though this was a unique season, will carry over into the future? You know, my question is, is will pauses be more acceptable even after COVID because of the flu and other things like that? I'm really curious to see what they do about stuff like that. You know, maybe uh, teams are going to be like, well, it's okay if you miss a, a game or two, if your team really needs it, maybe they need a mental health break. You know, it's just kind of the direction the country has been going, but um, I think I, I'm going to look at some of these longer pauses and uh, th- there was a metric there that, stated that the COVID pause was a, a good thing to fade and not all the games that we were able to fade always paid off. But in general, if you faded them all, you made a lot of profit doing it. Right. So it's something I'm, I'm going to be definitely more wary of for sure. Um, so here's something too, that I'm going to do better at. And I should have done better at this year. We have to remember that the first couple games in college basketball, Adam, uh, the first week or two teams play a lot faster and they're a lot sloppier, and you get a lot higher totals in those games. You know, you, you try to get the overs early in these games, and then later start looking under. You know, start moving your uh, your train of thoughts to the under after that, because eventually Vegas will adjust to an overinflated total, and you can kind of start uh, trying to hit those unders and making some money that way. I think that's one thing to look at, and I think something that we both everybody well both of us and everybody else needs to look at as a transfer portal right now because it's loaded with over a thousand players and i think that's gonna make a big impact for next season yeah i think so too and especially when you consider that you know a lot of these kids maybe with all these covid situations and you know being away from their families with this health crisis going on and and all of that some of these kids may move close to home and moving close to home may entail going to a mid-major school or a low-major school or something like that where, you know, in a, in a power conference, in one of the power six conferences for college basketball, you know, one player can make a difference, but more often than not, you know, they just kind of fit in to a team that's already pretty good or a team that already has balanced scoring options, something like that. We'll run into situations with this transfer portal where a kid will go to, you know, some A-Sun school or, you know, a Sunbelt team or a big sky team or something like that. And all of a sudden be a significant difference maker for that program. So I know there's a lot of stuff to follow at all times over the sports calendar. And, you know, once college basketball is over, you'll probably be more interested in major league baseball or, you know, the NFL draft or your preparations for the upcoming NFL or college football seasons. Maybe you shift gears to the NBA and the NHL, or you do more with golf or UFC, something like that. Just try to file away some of these really good players going to smaller schools and smaller programs that you know could really significantly increase the chances of that program having success. Yeah, and I, I think uh, there's a couple ways to think about that too. I mean, with this transfer portal so loaded with players, to believe it or not, that makes me almost lean the Kentuckys and the Dukes and the five-star recruiting teams uh, a little bit more towards the beginning. Usually you, you kind of maybe fade them in some circumstances uh, early because they're not together. They haven't played together as much as these other groups of kids. Well, when they're playing against a bunch of groups of kids that just have been transferring back and forth, you know, I think it's going to take a while for them to gel. So I almost lean them and I lean the teams that have been complete a little bit more that aren't transferring. There's, I'm sure there's teams out there that (laughs) aren't losing their players, uh, but you know, it's much less, but you know, maybe we looked up, uh, by those teams a little bit more, especially towards the beginning. So uh, those are the two things I'm going to take from this transfer portal being so big this year. Well, Kiev, as I mentioned at the top of the show, it's, it's been great to have you on the program. You know, I know that you're somebody who, who listened to me previously and, and, you know, you become good friends with myself and also Kyle Hunter. And, you know, like it, it's been great to have you on the program. It's been great to see what you've been able to achieve uh, with the odds breakers and also just, to see your thoughts evolve, both as a handicapper, but also in expressing them here on the show and doing a phenomenal job with your own podcast. It's been really awesome to see, man. It's it's an honor to have you on my show. It's an honor to call you a friend. And I just, I know that you've got a very bright future in this business and will continue progressing in the right direction here for sure. So I'm really happy to have been able to have you on the show these last few weeks, man. 
Adam, that is so kind. And I'm, th- and I'm very thankful to be on this show. You know, this show has made me better throughout the years when I started listening to it in 2013, you know, I was just a sports better more than uh, a professional back then. And just, I've learned so much from bang the book and now ATS.io and, and to be asked on this show because of the hard work that I put in is an absolute honor. And uh, this is a show that I will always hold as the number one show that I listen to uh, on a weekly basis. And, and Adam, yes, we have become friends and, and I, I've cherished our friendships. I tend to cherish our friendships with Kyle and everything that you do to me. I, I have a blast also texting you about these games, ranting and raving about them, you know, and uh, I think there's something that's going to live on for a long time. No, I definitely think it is. And something else that's going to live on for a long time is the oddsbreakers.com with your podcast, the fine work it's done over there. We talked about Chris Farley on the show. He's an excellent writer that you have over there at the website. Uh, what do you guys got going on right now? Well, we have some final four matchups obviously coming up and we are getting into baseball. You know, our handicappers are doing such a fantastic job in hockey and, and the NBA. I mean, you, you can see the tweets. I mean, they're, they're tweeting out winners right now. So I'm very happy about that. You know, it's, and it's just like, I always say, it's like they, they build a good case for their handicaps, whether you wither or lose, you're going to go in hot and cold streaks, build a good case of what you're talking about. It's more important to me than anything, because that's how we learn. And that's how we adjust to the changing industry right here. They're doing a great job. Listen to the oddsbreakers.com if you have a chance. And, uh, you know, if you want to become a free subscriber, feel feel free to do it. We usually throw out a play or two every single week as a free subscriber. We also have our free pick section. And if you like us and want to subscribe and help us out with all our costs, become a premium member and you get my plays when I make them. Um, you know, and obviously sometimes we buy back when we get some line value and uh, we just have as much fun as possible. So really appreciate you listeners out there. Well, and of course, I'm going to finish up the edit of this show and then turn around and hop on your show. So if anybody wants to hear my voice some more, and I don't know why you wouldn't, uh, you can hear me today on the Odds Breakers podcast. Not sure if it'll come out tonight or tomorrow morning for opening day, but we're going to talk some baseball on Kiev's show once I finish up the edit here of my show. So, Kiev, man, it's been a pleasure. Like I said, thank you so much for joining me, man. We'll be in touch over the summer for some one-off spots to talk about some different markets or just kind of catch up, you know, as we get a little bit of a downtime here uh, to some degree anyway in this business. But thanks again for joining me every Wednesday, man. I appreciate it. And, uh, I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Oh, thank you so much, Adam. Had a blast. And everybody, have a great time watching the games this weekend. And best of luck to you all. Well, make sure you follow Kiev on Twitter, at OBKiev. That's his personal one. And then, of course, at the Oddsbreakers for the website. Coming up on Thursday, we'll chat with Brad Powers, professional better and handicapper, over at bradpowersports.com. FCS College Football, a lot of teams opting out here this week. We'll talk about that. We'll touch on some FBS stuff as well with some spring games coming up. And, of course, take a look at the Final Four and the National Championship games. I know it's opening day. Typically, the betters box is on Thursday. But with the end of college basketball, we'll do the rest of this week out with Brad Powers on Thursday, the betters box on Friday. We'll have Kyle Hunter on next Monday, Brian Blessing on Tuesday. Then I'll do the betters box Thursday, and it'll be Monday, Thursday going forward for the next little while with my MLB podcast here on ATS Radio. That'll do it for me. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.